Welcome to another episode of Relay Theology. I'm Justin Schieber, and with me is Ben Watkins. Hello, everyone. Today, we're going to take a bit of a break from the interviews that we've been doing and kind of go back to uh, kind of what we were doing in our second episode. We, in that episode, we talked about uh, Roe's evidential argument from evil. And we kind of talked about all the moves in that argument, the kind of hidden premises in that argument, and the possible responses. Uh, but we didn't go into much depth on on what those responses might be. Um, and if you recall, one of the responses was called skeptical theism. It's one of the leading responses. I think it's probably fair to say that it came about uh, as a response to Rowe's argument, but it can be more broadly applied as well. Uh, so, Rowe's argument, if you recall, it moved from a premise about our not seeing any good reasons for some evils that occur in the world, to that therefore there probably are at least some of those evils that have no good reason. So, moving from appearance to reality, it, it appears that it's gratuitous, so that's some reason to think that it really is gratuitous. Obviously, the phrase skeptical theism, it, it, it comes into two, there are two components here. So, there's the theism aspect, which it's just talking about um, a belief in God, and then the skeptical component is not about skepticism about the existence of God, rather it's about skepticism about our ability to make any substantive inferences about the reasons available to God. God works in mysterious ways, right? The kind of superintelligence of God is just so much greater than ours that it appears that we're just not in a place to make any real substantive claims about what kinds of things God would be likely to do or allow or, or what have you. So I, I would even broaden that concept a little in, in the theism part and not necessarily say that you have to have a belief in theism to endorse skeptical theism. Um, because you could say, look, it just applies to theism. I mean, someone could be an agnostic and say, look, I, yeah, I don't think that we could expect to see X. And, you know, that follows from these skeptical theist um, assumptions. And that's that. Essentially, you're saying that like you don't have to be a theist to recognize some of the implications of theism. Sure. You could be an agnostic and say, look, the, the evidential argument from evil is not successful because we have these skeptical considerations with uh, uh, epistemic limitations uh, in relation to God. And so to that degree, it's, it's not exactly a great name uh, for what we're talking about here. Because again, it doesn't require theistic belief. It just requires an interesting um, kind of navigation of the conceptual landscape yeah. surrounding... It can be rather misleading because there's obviously multiple ways that you could, you know, interpret the phrase. Skeptical theism is, again, a, a kind of undercutting defeater of, of Rowe's argument, right? It's not saying that he's wrong in thinking that something is probably gratuitous. It's saying that he's doesn't he's not even allowed that inference. Yeah. That he gets there by, right? It it's it's a it's a way to block the evidential argument from evil. It's a way to say, look, okay, yes, I accept the appearance of this evil, but we're in no 
good position to then infer that this appearance is really the way things are. Right. So so typically, you can kind of divide defeaters uh, into two general different groups. You have your undercutting defeaters and your rebutting defeaters. A rebutting defeater would be an argument as a response to some claim that uh, is a reason to think that the claim itself is actually false. But an undercutting defeater pulls out the rug, the, the support of that claim. And that's what skeptical theists are attempting to do to Rowe's inference. They're not saying he's wrong in his conclusion. They're actually just saying that all the reasoning that he's brought to bear in support of his conclusion... He's unjustified yeah. in the reasons that he brings. One of the leading uh, skeptical theists, uh, a gentleman by the name of Michael Bergman... He has an analogy that I, I like to use actually, and it talks. He talks about like a, you know, say you're a complete beginner chess player, and you're sitting down in the park. You're sitting across from an expert chess player, someone who you know is an expert, and you are also aware that of yourself as a beginner. You recognize yourself as a beginner. So you look across the table, and your opponent makes a move that seems somewhat queer, somewhat strange, given your rather limited understanding of the rules and the goals of chess and the different strategies involved. Um, you look at a move he makes and you think, that's really odd. It's a, or that's a bad move. It seems like it's a really bad move, right? It seems self-defeating. Now, you can recognize that you have that perception, but that perception is, of course, rooted in your kind of superficial understanding of the game. And so it would be wrong of you at that point to infer that your expert chess player opponent uh, actually made a bad move. Because it's far more likely that they just know more about the rules, about the strategies involved in the game, uh, and that they're doing something that's really quite clever and is just beyond your, your chess pay grade, essentially. They are aware of considerations that you're not. Exactly. And so it would be wrong for us to, as, as you know, beginner chess players, to infer that he made a wrong move. And this is kind of what's being said by the skeptical theist, that we are the, the novice um, finite beings, right? And compared to God sitting across from the proverbial chess board, he makes a move and... From our pers perspective, it looks like it's a horrible uh, suffering. It's a, it's a gratuitous suffering. It doesn't seem like it has any good reason for it. But nevertheless, we're just, uh, you know, for all we know, God has this intricate network of reasons uh, of which we are utterly unaware. And it should be pretty apparent that that analogy, while it helps us understand the concepts rather well, um, obviously has its limits. When it comes to our observations of gratuitous evils, it happens a lot. We see it over and over and over and over and over. And so if we were going to hold that analogy constant, we would have to say that we know of this chess grandmaster, but he always seems to be making bad moves. Yes, that's that's a good point. And so now obviously you can, you can respond back and forth um, – with objections and replies to that, but you can you you should be able to just kind of intuitively see that that there's there's limits to what the 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 work that this skeptical thesis can do when when you look at all the overwhelming you know apparent apparently gratuitous evils that 
even when you even in its strongest forms, uh, skeptical theism has its limits. And I think that's actually where the term skeptical theism comes from, is from Paul Draper's paper. It's called um, The Limitations of Pure Skeptical Theism. So Michael Bergman, let's let's talk about his version of skeptical theism. And it should be noted that while this general strategy of undercutting uh, row-type arguments about uh, appearances of evils... Uh, or or other things that are typically um, foistered up against theism, uh, that this kind of strategy is largely common to all skeptical theisms. While that's true, there are varieties of skeptical theism, and so that needs to also be kept in mind. I think we'll probably be focusing on Bergman's today, but... Um, Weikstra has a famous one. I, I guess he's kind of the guy who pioneered skeptical theism in a way. Um so he has his, something called the uh, cornea, which is uh, conditions conditions of reasonable epistemic access. Essentially, what he's doing is he's listing these conditions under which we can make reasonable inferences, and he's saying that Rowe's argument fails to meet these conditions. Essentially, um, now Bergman's thesis uh, he gives four statements um, which he thinks are true on theism, which which essentially achieve skeptical theism and, and undermine Rowe's uh, inference. But there are other versions as well. Um, but the point is, is that they all... They're trying to block that inference. They're trying to block the crucial inference that gets you to atheism, basically. Right. And they do it with the same kind of thoughts in mind. They're What they're really interested in here is the epistemic chasm that exists between mere finite human persons and the divine intellect. I've heard the phrase epistemic distance. Uh, I mean, that's that's definitely a fancier word. Well, I'm nothing if not fancy. Um, <laughs> so Bergman's skeptical thesis, as he calls it, uh, comes in four parts. The first of which uh, states that we have no good reason for thinking that the possible goods we know of are representative of the possible goods that there are. Um, so essentially what he's talking about here is that uh, he's not denying that we do have access to some goods. Uh, in fact, we might have access to quite a large amount of goods. But the point is, is that we have no good reason to think that the goods to which we do have access are representative of the total amount of goods there are, the total types of goods that there are. A good, a good analogy is, is with an iceberg, where the top of the iceberg... Um, might not necessarily be representative of the entire iceberg below the water. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. We just don't know. So yeah, we're, the whole point here is obviously we just we we need to be very careful about the kinds of inferences we make from what may or may not be a very limited data set to uh, to more broad claims about the nature of the iceberg. Another as a whole. good um, visualization that I like is. Um, uh, you would be justified um, in if you looked around and saw no elephants in your living room to then conclude that there are no elephants in your living room. But if you were to look around your living room and say, "I don't see any germs," you would not. It would not be a justified inference to then say there's no germs in my living room. Exactly. That's a really that highlights a really important thing because the question there is whether or not we'd expect to see them if they were there. Um, obviously, an elephant is is of a type of is a kind of thing that you would expect to see if you were in that living room and is and if your eyes were operating properly, right? 
Um, but, uh, you know, germs are not the kinds of things that, that are immediately obvious to us. And so sometimes even after looking really carefully, we still don't see uh, the germ, right? And so that's, so. but it would be unreasonable for us to therefore conclude that there are no germs in that room. Or you could even bring it up, you know, more in scale and just say insects, things that you could in principle see. Now, the second part of this thesis is, is kind of a mirror of the first. Uh, it just says that we have no good reason for thinking that the possible evils that we know of are representative of the possible evils that there are. Um, so obviously this is just all the same analogies apply. Um, but the whole point here is that we're just talking about moral goods and evils. We're talking about the, the moral facts in general. He totally could have combined those theses. Right, yeah, I don't know why that, that seems <laughs> needlessly complicated. Um, then you have uh, three, so it comes in four parts. So the third one is we have no good reason for thinking that the entailment relationships that we know of between possible goods and the permission of possible evils are representative of the entailment relationships that there are between goods and the permissions of evils. The entailment relationship part is is key here. So... Recall that Roe was adamant that the good that is appealed to in order to explain or to justify evil in the world, that evil needs to be logically necessary for the attainment of that good or for the avoidance of some evil equally bad or worse. Instrumentally necessary to attain some higher order. Not instrumentally, though. That's the point. It needs to be logically necessary. Okay. That's, that's why, that's why uh, Roe's argument is so powerful, because it seems so difficult to come up with a logically necessary response. Yeah, but Bergman okay. here I see what is you're saying, saying. Bergman here is saying, uh, look, we don't even know if the logical entailment relationships between goods and evils and permissions are, if the ones that we know of are representative of those that exist, right? So he's saying, yeah, uh, Roe seems to be putting a bold challenge in front of us, but but we can't even say that the logical entailments are things that we can be confident about. So the fourth statement in uh, Bergman's thesis is that we have no good reason for thinking that, to that the total moral value or disvalue that we perceive in certain complex states of affairs accurately reflects the total moral value or disvalue that they actually have. So this is, this is rather intuitive, I think. Like we can look at a certain state of affairs and think, you know, and, and given our situation, perceive it in a particular way. And we might think, what a horrible thing. Uh, for example, we might be, you know, we, we come across a scene where someone is um, putting a large blade into someone's body. And we think, well, this is this clearly is a bad state of affairs. Uh, there's pain going on and someone appears to be intentionally inflicting that pain. Um, but only, only if we have the background knowledge of the relevance of the lab coats that they happen to be wearing and the fact that they're, they're just performing a surgery... Um, that quite obviously changes the, the moral uh, nature of that situation. And so we don't always know the full details of the complex state of affairs. And that's all he's saying here is that we just don't have any good reason for thinking that. Um, that's the one I find the hardest to accept out of all of I, the, the first three, I think, are, you know, you can concede rather intuitively. But the, the last one is the one that kind of raises my eyebrow. The way in which these four theses undermine Rowe's argument, it's it should be coming intuitively clear at this point. Um, you know, when we when we see 
some horrible event in the real world taking place, and we think that's obvious, and it, we just perceive it as a kind of pointless evil, and an evil that is such that there's no good connected to it in a way that could possibly justify a, a perfect being from allowing it. And so we conclude that therefore no God exists, right? But these kind of reminders of epistemic humility here um, should lead us to think, to be to be rather skeptical of that kind of move, to be um, a bit shy about making that kind of row inference. So one thing we might ask, uh, after we kind of get a kind of an understanding of how skeptical theism operates in, in this context. Um, one thing we might ask is, okay, uh, are all theists skeptical theists? I mean, even if we limit theism to talking about the kind of traditional view of God, of, of, of theism as all-powerful, all-knowing, and morally perfect God, do all persons who subscribe to that view, are they all skeptical theists? I mean, when we're talking about God's being all-knowing and and then the obvious fact that we're rather ignorant, it seems pretty intuitive that skeptical theism should be true. What do you think? So, yeah, not not all theists are skeptical theists. So I think that in, in Rowe's argument that if, if you accept the premise that God would not allow any gratuitous evils, I think you are committed to the claim that there are no gratuitous evils and that those that's just merely apparent i think they are committed to that claim but that will setting that aside they're not committed wait wait to, who's who's committed to what claim sorry uh theists are not committed to the skeptical theist claim but they are committed to this claim that there are no gratuitous evils if they accept the claim that gratuitous evils and God are incompatible. Yes, and, and that is, of course, there, there's another debate there, but... Um... There's another debate there, but so setting that aside, there's, you know, very prominent, well-known theistic philosophers who do not endorse skeptical theism. They think that it has um, implausible implications or just kind of does too much violence to the theistic worldview just in general and just it, it's it's an unacceptable level of skepticism. Or they just think that it's obviously false because they think themselves as perceiving um, a representative portion of, of moral facts. They Or they think that if there was a God, we should know the facts. You know, the, you know we should know the reason. So just like a parent tries to explain to their child why they have to get their vaccine, even though it's going to hurt, um, even though the child may not be able to understand all the reasons or even really be able to appreciate those reasons and respond to them in the situation that they're in, the parents, a loving parent would still try to comfort um, their child in such moments. And, and you can kind of see how that will shade into the problem of divine silence. But then again, that's another issue. We'll, we'll leave that for another day. One of the probably most famous Christian philosophers still living today, uh, Richard Swinburne of Oxford, uh, he is not a skeptical theist. Uh, he's got a number of, of objections to it, and we won't go into those here, but... He has, a, he has several unpopular views, though. <laughs> yeah, he, he does not, he does not uh, find uh, skeptical theism persuasive uh, whatsoever, nor does Trent Doherty, for that matter. Uh, in fact, I, got a, I have a very interesting quote here from... Uh, 
his latest book um, on uh, the, the problem of animal pain, uh, which is a fascinating book, by the way, and I'm hoping to interview him soon on it. He writes, quote, I see no clear reason to think there are kinds of goods of which we are unaware in any relevant way. This is because we have reason to believe we have a sufficient grasp on human nature. We know what is best for humans, love, friendship, knowledge, virtue, health. And since a reason is just a grasped good, and knowing that these are the kinds of goods that would have to be realized with the appropriate relation to current suffering, we know the kinds of reasons God would have to have in mind. So here he's saying, uh, look, we do have good reason to think that at least in general types, we do understand the reasons that would motivate God. And I actually, it's hard to imagine general types of goods that could justify, you know, uh, particularly horrendous events. And so I think what Trent uh, Doherty is trying to get at there is that, look, we, we, we might not be able to know all the particulars of it, but we would know in general. So obviously, Trent Doherty is—I mean, he's—he's he's a Christian philosopher. So uh, ultimately, he doesn't think that um, evil is is too big of a problem for the existence. It's of certainly God. not a decisive objection. But he does think opinion. that he—he he thinks he—he's going to go the way of theodicy and of defense rather than skeptical theism. He's that's Swinburne's route too. He's—he thinks that 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 we should be trying to explain evils instead of trying to be skeptical and you know avoid certain inferences that we should be you know putting forward things like free will theodicies and soul building theodicies and etc etc absolutely since the kind of skeptical theist reply has uh, arisen in response to uh, rose paper uh, there have been of course objections that have that have come about and one of those objections is by Roe himself one of the earlier ones uh, his his objection essentially says something to the effect of, "Look, if skeptical theism is true, uh, you have to. It, it commits you to this notion that even if all of human life was nothing but absolute pure terror and excruciating pain, you could never sit and consider and think about God and think maybe maybe there isn't a God. You know, concluding from that data, right?" Even if the world was far worse, if it was just a hellish landscape, we could still say that we don't have any reason to think that uh, God is unlikely to have reasons connected to those horrible things in such a way as to justify them. Now, Roe is offering this as a kind of, uh, I guess, like a, a reductio. reductio. Yeah, and intuitively, I agree with him. But the theist is, gonna, is just going to say, well, yeah. Of course, you you are not uh, capable of making those inferences, and he'll remind us, of course, of the the infinite intelligence of God, and then our limited finite intelligence. I think one of the strongest replies is to just say, you know, look, I do think that things like bone cancer in children is gratuitous. I think that there is no good reason for that, and that it is unjustifiable. So you could appeal to different moral principles here and say that it's it's always wrong to treat someone in a way that they could not rationally consent. Now, if that were true, well, then you have a decisive objection because you could say, look, no one would could rationally consent to being to having bone cancer at a young age. And so it would just be wrong to let that happen. I don't know how I feel about the objection. 
Okay. Because basically what you're saying is that, look, the appearances really are reality. The, 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 The overwhelming appearance of gratuitous evil in the world just really is real. Yeah, so I mean, I guess this is just begging the question, though, isn't it? Well, not written. No, it's it's not because you're moving from appearance to re- it's no more begging the question than it is to say that my appearance of the external world or the appearance of my memory experiences. I don't think it begs the question any more than those claims do. I gotcha. Um, so I guess it'd be good probably now to go to one of the more popular strategies. It's a a general strategy. A lot of people worry about the violence that this skeptical thesis could do to their um their worldview overall um what kind of implications are going to come out of this are uh, you know could we have external world skepticism uh skepticism about the past um moral skepticism um divine deception you know maybe god has reasons to lie to us these are all potential worries that a skeptical theist could have because these are potential implications that their skepticism has right and so you know again we've already mentioned that there are different versions of skeptical theism and so perhaps some of these won't apply and and you know to to one but may apply to another um but yeah like as you're talking about there's there's been this slew of papers that have talked about how this skepticism, uh, in an effort to avoid Rowe's argument, has bled into other areas of, of life that we that we normally wouldn't want it to. So again, as you mentioned, um, you know, uh, could bleed into certain moral areas, right? Like if it's the case that we're that we don't have any good reason to think that our evaluative judgments of states of affairs is representative of the actual value content of that state of affairs, what does that do to our obligations? You know, if I'm walking in a, a, a field and I see a poor little child drowning in the water, me as an individual, I would think, well, I should probably go in and try to save that child. It would seem like a relatively easy thing to do. It's just a pond. Um, so... Clearly, there's an obligation that is, has thrust itself upon me. Um, but if I was a skeptical theist, that's not, it's not obvious that I should save that child. Because yeah. if, if that child is suffering, then that child's suffering is connected, so far as I know, to a great good that uh, can only be achieved through the suffering of that child. Um, and so what does this do to our obligations? Some have written that it, it obliterates much of our obligations. Others have written... Our ordinary moral thinking. We would just wouldn't be able to make these sort of judgments. One of the things, the, the Peter Singer's Drowning Child Thought Experiment, one of the things why that's, you know, one of the crucial parts of that argument, why it has force, is because we so easily accept that, yes, we have this moral obligation to help this child. Well, skeptical theism seems to, to, to say, whoa, Maybe you shouldn't accept that obligation so easy. Maybe you are exercising your free will and frustrating God's divine plans. Right. So you're just kind of, you're in a kind of uh, moral paralysis situation. You just don't know. I think that's a good term. What the right thing to do here is. Um, and so, again, others have written that... Uh, uh, you know, the skeptical theism has uh, pretty poor implications on our knowledge of, um, 
content about God that is that has scripture justification only. So this is uh, some of the work of Eric Wielenberg has has argued this, uh, wherein he says that um, you know any any statement. Um, and these are primarily theological statements that have th- that have uh, biblical justification only, or word of God justification. Word of God justification only is a better way to put it. That these kind of statements, uh, we have no good reason to think that those are not lies. We, for example, can't if we if we're not in a position to assess the probability of God, um, you know, allowing a fawn to die in the forest. Then we're not in a set. We're not in a position to assess the probability of whether or not God has reasons to lie to us, um, in some biblical text or in some special revelation or or what have you. And if you try to appeal to God's goodness by saying you God wouldn't lie to me because God is all good, well, that's it's the same move on the other side where you just say, well, we're appealing to God's goodness and saying that He wouldn't allow all this. Suffering. Well, notice then that this person would be betraying their skeptical theism, um, because now they're saying that they yep. do know the entailment, uh, the behavior entailment of certain moral uh, properties. Um, that's that's not available to uh, at least a, a Bergman skeptical theist. Uh, perhaps it's available to others. Um, and again, you know, the, we're, we don't want to be seen as as saying that skeptical theism is a complete lost cause because of all these arguments. Uh, it's a complicated matter. Um, some of these arguments may apply to some versions and some not others, uh, as as we've already mentioned. But well, all right. I think we're I think we've covered that topic at least to the depth that we wanted to. Uh, I think that in future episodes, though, we might go in even more depth. So definitely stay tuned for uh, future episodes on on this and other issues within philosophy of religion. Thank you for listening.